Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 20, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Pull up a chair to a very different Thanksgiving table, folks. Jose Antonio Vargas, Pulitzer Prize winner, journalist, and immigration activist, will bring essential perspectives from his new book, Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen, and his thriving Define American campaign. In the second segment, Patricia Martz will return to the show, joined, joined by Rebecca Robles, Juaneño Achichaman descendant, to unearth local Native American culture in our midst. We'll be back after a station break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. It's a real honor to bring you my first guest, Jose Antonio Vargas, Pulitzer Prize winner, journalist and immigration activist and CEO, co-founder of Define American. He's here to reflect on the themes he strikes around America's blind spots on immigration in his memoir entitled Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen, citizen underlined, published by HarperCollins. His always groundbreaking work is everywhere. The Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, Huffington Post, the New Yorker, San Francisco Chronicle, an Emmy-nominated MTV special, White People, and has, it's taken his composed and self-described woolly eyebrows to appearances on CNN, Fox, National Public Radio, MSNBC, and, well, everywhere. He's received the Salem Award from the Same Name Foundation that draws on lessons of the Salem Witch Trials, the Sydney Award, Penn Center's Freedom to Write Award, as well as honorary degrees from Colby College and the John Jay Criminal Justice. He serves on the advisory board of the Dream.us, a scholarship fund for undocumented immigrant students. A product of the San Francisco Bay Area, he attended school in Mountain View where he cut his teeth on journalism. In the same town where next year an elementary school will open in his name. He completed his bachelor's degree at San Francisco State University. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jose Antonio Vargas. Thank you so much for having me. So congratulations on another remarkable work from you. And uh, I think congratulations turn quickly to condolences because Dear America is a whole lot about loss amidst vigor creativity and persistence and I'm I'm just going to give some condolences for your loss with Jake for one that whom you mentioned in your book but yeah. um, but your distant family members the loss of it's been you were 12 when you left when you last saw your mother and that loss is something that is a something I don't think privileged native borns ever ever can grasp what that loss is like well um well 
<laughs> you know, to be honest with you, I, I didn't really know how to grasped it either until I started writing this book. Like, I didn't really know how to, um, like, the language around that, right? Like, how do you talk about separation um, in such a way that people who don't live kind of in these conditions would understand what the toll of that is? And I think, you know, in writing the book, that was my own way of even dealing with it, right? It was like, it was really therapeutic to be able to you know, to say on, you know, on paper, in writing, that I don't know how to talk about my mom. I don't know how to do that, right? I think I, 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 I pretended all these years that, that it's okay, that it's okay that I hadn't seen her for 25 years, that, you know, we communicate on FaceTime or Skype or... And then I wrote the book, and all of a sudden I kind of was trying to understand what the toll of that is to like a 12 year old kid who moves here and then learns that he's here illegally and then learns that he has to adapt. And then, and then I'm talking about this person, like it's not me, but it's me. And then understanding kind of how I, why I am the way that I am, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's been fundamental kind of trying to understand what separation does to people. And when I was writing this book, too, was, you know, during the whole um, during the whole separation policy at the border and when the kids were being separated oh. from their parents. Yes. And so that made it very, very, you know, present. Like my loss felt very present in, in a way that it hadn't been. So, yeah, but, but, but thank you for reading the book. Well... If we, if I do my job right, this book is copies are going to move out. People aren't going to have finished it by the time their Thanksgiving table <laughs> is. Uh, they push back from that and head over to the bowl games. But I'm concerned that the earnest appeal. It's it has. There's nothing partisan about your text, your commentary. No. There's nothing partisan. But I'm concerned that your earnest commentary isn't going to make it fast enough to enough people so this needle on the immigration debate, you know, it starts to move. Because you, you, and you're you're the one who's been in purgatory since you were age 12 with, with so many things as, uh, as you talked about when I, I first got a chance to hear you in Claremont a couple of months ago. And <sighs> it's how you've changed your mind about how your relatives managed your situation to that all of their decisions were decisions that they made with their best possible information that put you in the in a situation that nobody knows how to fix and we'll we'll get into that I'm, i i guess i'll just if i may fly through a bit of a summary as a 12 year old you boarded a plane in manila philippines you arrived in the bay area to be reared by your grandparents you attended school and they had planned for you to work strictly in the informal sector. And yet then you're supposed to marry a woman that would help you establish citizenship. And all those assumptions were very, they ratcheted down all of your opportunities to, to live a normal, full adult life. So the themes throughout your book are lying, passing, hiding, and showing up. That's, that's your book. <laughs> yes, that is basically yes, and and um, actually, you know, 
I have to say that my, my, my editor, Julia Schaffitz, was really helpful in trying to, because I didn't want to write a traditional memoir, you know, because in a way, I'm, I'm 37 years old, and you know, I, one could argue that I haven't lived long enough to write a memoir. So I wanted to, I wanted to kind of write this book in a way that was very present. And so my editor asked me, you know, she asked me to list the 20 most painful experiences of my life. Oh. And which was a horrible, terrible thing to ask somebody. But then when I went through the list, it actually was cathartic just to write them all down. And then it was really fascinating how every single thing was either about lying about who I am, trying to pass as someone else, or hiding. You know, maybe hiding from the government or hiding from my own friends because I don't want to have to, like, answer questions like, hey, you know, why haven't you seen mom for 25 years? Um, which is why I never talked about my mom. <laughs> I just, I think at, at one point, actually, it was easier just to pretend she wasn't, she was never there. Just I don't have to talk about her. So that, that, that gave kind of the structure of the book, lying, passing, hiding. And then I thought, too, that in the past seven years, traveling around the country, I've met, like, you know, thousands of undocumented people. And it was a way to kind of honor their experiences as well, because... These are, these are the things that we have to do, right? And then the beauty of it was realizing then that you don't have to be undocumented to relate to what this is, that all of us, I think, have gone through this, you know, moments in our lives where we have to try to lie or pass or hide. So that's why the structure really, I think, gave something really specific, which is the story, kind of a universal, you know, reach. Indeed. And... What I, I wasn't aware before that John F. Kennedy uh, had written oh, A yeah. Nation of Immigrants, and this is a copy you carry around with you, including when yeah. you're in front of a lot of microphones and a lot of congressional members. And I, and I want that uh, it's only two days away from the 45th anniversary of his assassination, yeah. and it seems fitting that we'll take up your connection with A Nation of Immigrants that he penned in the 1950s and was in the process of rewriting the year yep. he was killed. And as you mentioned to us, 42 million immigrants came to the, to, I, want, I don't know where we're going to draw the line, if it's, we say in North America, we say came, 42 immigrants, million immigrants came to the U.S. in, in 187 years. Seven years, yep. And then again, 43 million immigrants in the, just the, the last 50 years yep. when he was writing this book. And I highly, you know, I mean, for me, I, I have to say, by the way, that book to me should be a must-read for every congressional member and every politician. Just one of the things that really struck me about it was its humility. You know, like here was here was a president who very much remembers and honors, you know, his Irish forebearers, and felt it in such a passionate way that he wrote this book that literally traced where this country comes from. You know, because unless you're Native American, unless you're African American, you're an immigrant, right? And it, it was so specific when I was reading the book, it was, it was that he even outlined what each immigrant group brought to America. Like, for example, I didn't know that it was because of the German immigrants why there are so many symphonies in cities across America. I didn't know that the German, like the German work of life and way of life was one of the reasons why Sunday is like a day off in America, right? Like the blue law I just, day. Yeah. I just didn't know these things. Right. And, and it was just fascinating to kind of 
know how how just shaped this country was by different sorts of immigrants. And I'm really glad that you said what you said about kind of the numbers, which are so, you know, staggering that it kind of bears repeating. So it does. within 187 years, 42 million immigrants, mostly from Europe, moved to this country. And then, most recently, in just 50 years, 43 million immigrants, mostly from Latin America and from Asia, moved here. I don't think knowing that context, I think, is important for trying to understand why we are where we are, why we have a president that won, you know, on, on you know, he made immigration as campaign issue and won on it, and now he's going to get reelected possibly by making birthright citizenship kind of the cornerstone of his reelection campaign. Like this is not none of this is a surprise, and that's why I think it's important that we have to know our own history. And you know, I wonder how many people right now sitting in Congress really know their own immigrant backgrounds. And to add to the layers of contention and complexity, the U.S. Customs and Immigration Services in this administration, L. Francis Cisna, uh, has removed a phrase that has appeared in the Immigration Services uh, ch- charter there. It's appeared, it's the, the phrase nation of immigrants date as far back as 1874, and Francis Cisna has removed that line, even though he it says we are a nation of immigrants and yep. immigrants' children. So it's, or, it's more insult to injury, and I, I actually, I'm, I, I can't resist this, uh, Jose, that when I made a contribution to the Define American yesterday... Uh, oh, thank that you for I, that. I wanted to do it in Francis Cisna's name, but I thought, nope, no, but I'll that I, I should have, but I I've just wanted it in my name. So, <laughs> so anyway, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Jose Antonio Vargas, Pulitzer Prize winner, journalist and active CEO and founder of Define American, posting us all about where he is and where we are, discussing his new book, Dear America: Notes of an Undocumented Citizen, published by Harper Collins. My suggestion for required reading for everybody and as he suggests that a nation of immigrants penned by john f kennedy for a certain uh, elected uh, audiences uh, their required reading assignment so your dedication to your mother and the immigrant theme here is that the, to you write you dedicate the book to her and then to the world's migrant population you mm. pen 258 million and counting. And our climate science friends are saying this is no, this number is going to look quaint in a few years with displacement, with climate change. So it's, it's absolutely it's overwhelming. And, and think actually right now, just FYI, I'm sitting in a hotel room across the street from the headquarters of the United Nations. Um, last night I was, I'd never been to the UN. I, I, I wasn't sure if they would let undocumented people inside the United Nations. Um, but I w- I'm here because last night I was asked to give a speech yes. in, inside the United Nations. And I actually chose to read a passage from the book, um, which, you know, I'm just going to read it very, very, just a very short part here now. So I read last night that, from the book that migration is the most natural thing people do. Right, the root of how civilizations, nation states, and countries were established. The difference, however, is that when white people move, then and now, it's seen as courageous and necessary, celebrated in history books. 
Yet when people of color move, legally or illegally, the migration itself is subjected to question of legality. Is it a crime? Will they assimilate? When will they stop? We have a human right to move, and government should serve that right, not limit it. As I went on and on reading this passage, I could hear and I could feel the nervousness in the room. It was maybe like 300 people, 400 people in the room. And I'm starting to realize that a lot of these people inside the UN, I don't think have heard this kind of perspective before. Certainly not given to them while being inside the United Nations. And I started really thinking about how global this conversation has to be. Right, like you just mentioned climate change, you know, like we have not as a society really interrogated why people move. Isn't that ironic? Especially in the country that is, you know, that is founded on the freedom of movement. Like we're not asking harder questions of ourselves, right? Like what does U.S. foreign policy and trade agreements have to do with why people come here? Do we just think they come here because they want to see the Statue of Liberty and they want to understand what the American dream is? No, it's way more complicated than that. Right. Right. And I, I want to say what I really enjoyed in your talk and that's in your book, that the uh, the colonial aspect of yeah. immigration. And as you say, we are here because you were there. I mean, and, and you've, you've got such great pithy expressions and you're talking about that again in uh, today's interview. Uh, it's a lot to consider as we're sort of, you know, sleepwalking around what we what assumptions we live with without giving it that that deeper deeper consideration there well yes well i mean the goal for me was how do i write something you know i mean really the biggest challenge is i didn't want to lecture you know i i didn't i didn't want to write kind of a didactic book i really wanted in many ways to start a conversation with the reader right this conversation about you know, I mean, for me, again, as far as I'm concerned, unless you're Native American or African American who was brought here through slavery, you have to answer three fundamental questions. Where'd you come from? The Philippines, for me. How'd you get here? I was smuggled. Who paid? My grandfather, $4,500. If you can't answer those three questions, then you don't have any right to talk about any border or any wall that you don't understand. There. There it is. And you also mentioned that the somehow white... People are considered expats, and yes. and people of color are considered immigrants, and that's gonna we're gonna talk about that in the Native American segment of this program after your oh, segment. That's so it's it's a seg. I, I'm moving it up to the to the middle of your interview, but we'll bring it up to the front of their interview when we get to that. So, well, and and, and but that but that really tells you right there how language itself limits knowledge. Right, like how the very how how we use language, what we decide to kind of give import to, dictates the entire conversation, right? And I would argue that we bastardize the language when it comes to migration. That we don't even. I mean, I was I was on Fox News the day before the the midterms, okay, and talking to the host, and I kept reminding her that there's a difference between a migrant, a refugee, and a asylee. And they're not undocumented immigrants or, quote-unquote, illegal aliens, as Fox News likes to call them sometimes. Right. That there's actually legal difference in defini- and definitions between those, among those phrases and among those words. And she couldn't, she couldn't understand it. She, well, she just couldn't, she couldn't, she couldn't process that. 
Well, right? nuance is not in Fox's DNA. So no, uh, it's not. They're, and, they're uh, you know, but it's not got, just Fox News. Right. It's also NPR. Right. It's Absolutely. also the New York Times. I it's agree. also the Washington Post. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to make sure while while we're talking about this nuance and all that and loss, I want to also have people consider in those both of those categories that you you've talked about your coping mechanisms with sort of not really letting the separation from your mother totally sink in, sort of compartmentalizing it in the highest. And then you realize, as you talk about near the end of it, I was waiting for the shoe to drop, and it dropped near the end when you're talking about being a gay American and how that you're trying to cope with moving through and passing and hiding and all that, that you developed an extremely thick outer layer and intimacy is, the lack of intimacy has made you something of a social ascetic. You haven't ever, you've been deprived of an intimate relationship. You've not been allowing yourself that. And that's that's got to be an, an undocumented immigrant's story for um it was among the hardest thing to write about and to write about in a way. And that's the thing about writing, you know, it forces you to really, <laughs> the, the empty page has a really high BS detector, right? Yeah. Like I couldn't, you know, I, I make films as well. And, you know, like when I make a film, I can, I can, I can overshoot. I can, I, I can do a lot of editing that makes something out of nothing. Right. But an empty page is an empty page. And in the moment you start lying to yourself, it tells you right away that you're lying. And so even trying to understand why I am the way that I am with relationships, right? Like why I'm, I kind of run away from people. Kind of connecting those dots and understanding that, you know, my mom putting me on that plane when I was 12 and then getting here and kind of adapting to this new world and then realizing that she was never coming and realizing that I was alone. All of that that's all connected. I didn't think so. I didn't think, I, I was like, oh, you know, whatever. Like, I can get through this. You know, people have gone through worse things, you know. And and then when I'm writing and I'm realizing that they're all connected with each other, right? right. And that, I mean, in some way, I mean, I remember writing this part in the book. After I wrote it, I had to like, I had to, I think I walked two miles. Because I ended up writing something around, something along the lines of, in many ways, like, I'm still that kid in that plane, Trying to understand why she put me there. Exactly. I'm letting that sink in. And I also want to um, bring up the utter irony that you bring to our attention is you had ICE on the telephone. You had (laughs) a congressional member asking you their three-by-five card question about you being undocumented. It was Jeff Sessions. Jeff yeah. Sessions, yeah. We, we know a little bit about him now. He's got a bit of a, bit, bit of a bio. And so, Ted Cruz was sitting right there, and I think he walked away. That's the thing. That, oh, but, I but, testified but I want to bring up Congress. the Jose, I testified in the Judiciary Committee. And so what, what I want to bring up about that is those two entities who are all about the immigration debate on their terms, when yep. you, you ask them, you know, what are they going to do with you, what are they going to do about you? And the line goes dead. There's no response. Yep, there's no response. That's that's a bigger uh, a BS uh, than the white page left blank by the But you know, author. there's no response because it's all theater, right? Like I wasn't there and I'm not here to act. 
Like, I'm not here to play a role. I'm not here to be your quote-unquote illegal. My life is actually real. My family is real, right? And yet I think for too many politicians, you know, especially in the Republican Party, I'm afraid to say, right, you know, this is a talking point. You know, this is a wedge issue, and you don't, you don't give up a wedge issue that you're not going to have a wedge, right? So, unfortunately, you know, I think in many ways the American public is actually ahead of the United States Congress, as they are on some really critical issues, too, like, you know, gu- like gun control, right? The American public wants something to change, and yet congressional leaders don't want anything to change for the most part because it benefits them, right? And, right. you know, that... It, it, I mean, it's even clearer to me now, after putting myself through this book, that this book gave me clarity. Yes. You know, I wrote the book thinking I was leaving. I wrote it thinking I was going to leave. I thought I'd publish the book, I'd promote it to the fall, and then by Christmas time, I would try to come back to the Philippines and quote-unquote self-deport. Clearly, I'm not doing that. Clearly um, not. Because the book actually reminded me that I am home. Like, this is, this is, this is where I'm from now. Right? I had to do the book to get to that point. But then the book gave me this clarity of not only of the self, but of, the, of my purpose. And in many ways, you know, I'm very clear on who I am and what I want. I think this country is the one that's unclear of what it is and what it wants. And that lack of clarity, I'm going to uh, tie in with, as I was preparing for your interview, and I raised your situation because it's, it's not there is no way right now. There's no fix within your no, grasp, no within fix. our grasp. And so I'm I'm amazed that by reasonably sophisticated associations of mine, they're sympathetic persons, and they have no idea how complicated a fix no. is. I mean, I'm thinking... You know, and for me, that, you know, I think the, when, when the day the book came out, I, my, one of my first interviews was with the Today Show. Uh, to promote the book, and wow. the the anchor, one of the anchors, interviewed me, and one of his first questions is, "Why can't you just get legal?" And I'm thinking to myself, "Wait a second. If journalists are, if journalists whose task it is to inform the public, right? If they don't know, how's the public going to know? Right? Most most people have no idea that there is no process, there is no line for people like me to get in the back of. Like right now for me, there there are three options. One, a pardon from the president. That's not going to happen, nor do I want it. Two, having a congressional member or a senator introduce a private bill, a private bill, just to make me legal, just me. I'm not going to do that. What does that say to 11 million other people who don't have the same kind of connections or, you know, resume as I do? Like that would be... I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't feel right about it. Three is passing some sort of immigration reform, and it would excuse all the fraud and kind of provide immunity to all the things that I've done wrong and to all the other people who have done things that are, quote-unquote, you know, illegal. But I don't know when that's going to happen. So that puts us in this very, you know, I called it purgatory. And even writing that word, yes. it's like, oh, gosh, is that really what it is? Yes, it's what it is. Like, how do you... You're stuck. You're stuck. So how do you make a life out of that? How do you do that? And then, of course, then I'm, then I'm reminded. <laughs> I've, I've been recently fascinated with Susan B. Anthony. I, oh. I, you know, I knew, of course, about the suffrage movement, but I didn't really know all the details that went to that fight. And then realizing, <laughs> you know, in many ways, you, you could argue that the arc of American history is 
people in this country passing, right, and trying to kind of achieve this this freedom that this country promises, but so often in our history doesn't live up to. And so realizing all that, like realizing kind of what women of all races have gone through, realizing, of course, what African-Americans have to go through, what Native Americans have to go through. So that made it kind of, it, it told me that it was much bigger than just my quote-unquote own little struggle. So that was helpful, you know, kind of contextualizing it in that way. Exactly. I'd like to ask as sort of a closing question. I want to give you a chance to, to say just a little bit in sort of short order. I apologize. Define American. I don't yeah. know if there's any uh, events in Southern California coming up. That lots of amazing projects are coming out of there. Yeah. What are I'm, I'll, I'll put the Define American uh, link on my podcast summary. And I but oh, what you. are Jose? Oh, please. What are some indications that you're getting the immigration Venn diagram to move closer to a circle? Well, I mean, actually, right now, today, here in this Thanksgiving week, we actually just posted our annual gift of uncomfortable conversations. When you go to the website, there's literally a PDF and there's an entire kind of, you know, package of information that you can take. How do you talk? to that uncle during Thanksgiving that always says that thing about illegal people, quote-unquote illegal people. How do you talk to that coworker? How do you talk to that classmate? How do you talk to that friend, right? I would argue that we got to get into more uncomfortable conversations if we really want to understand how to make this issue. So, yeah, so please, if you can, go to defineamerican.com and check out kind of our entire package and a gift of uncomfortable conversations. Well, I have... Lots more to ask. I'll simply honor uh, what a remarkable book this is. I want to oh. make uh, make more copies available to people because, as as you say, it's this is wasn't a, a I, if I wrote the book, it would have be a scold. Yours is an earnest, earnest message for everybody to let sink in. And Jose Antonio Vargas, I really appreciate your being on Ask a Leader. Today. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is a real honor, and we're gonna, I, I really, really appreciate your time. You're, we're playing the soundtrack to your your coping what, back around the Mountain View days. Let's see if we can pull it. <laughs> All righty. Thank you. I thank take, you. Uh, Jose, thank you for taking the time. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest was Jose Antonio Vargas, and he has just, he's a founder of Define American. His book is Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen, available at his website, joseantoniovargas.com, or at your favorite independent book dealer. We'll be right back with Patricia Martz and Rebecca Robles with lots to take stock during and well beyond Native American Month. Don't you worry about a thing Don't you worry about a thing, mama Cause I'll be standing on the side when you check it out Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My guests in this portion are Rebecca Robles and returning is Patricia Martz. Rebecca is a Juaneño 
a Jajaman descendant and a nurse. She is a board member of California Cultural Resources Preservation Alliance, which her mother and Patricia Martz founded in 1998. Her mother, Lillian Robles, has passed, but Rebecca carries on the work to preserve the sacred sites of the ancestors, including the annual ancestor pilgrimage where the tribal community comes together to visit sacred sites that are preserved, threatened, or have been destroyed. She's founder and president of the United Coalition to Protect Panhe, the pre-contact village of her ancestors. She also organizes the annual celebration of the protection and preservation at Pane. This Native American gathering is held at San Mateo State Campground, is open to the public, and includes performances by local and statewide Native Americans, as well as those as far away as Mexico. And also joining us is Patricia Martz, who returns to the show. A little review again about her, as I mentioned. She's co-founded California Cultural Resource Preservation Alliance with Rebecca's mother. Patricia was an archaeologist at the Los Angeles District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. She was principal investigator for the San Nicolas Island Archaeological Research Program, which provide archaeological field training, research, and publication opportunities, jobs for students underrepresented in archaeology. Patricia served as chairperson and prehistoric archaeologist for the State Historical Resources Commission and chairperson of the State Historical Resource Commission Curation Committee. And she's conducted archaeological investigations in California for over 40 years. Patricia completed her BA in, at Cal State University Long Beach and her PhD at UC Riverside. Rebecca comes to us from Hawaii, and Patricia joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, ladies. Thank you. Glad to Thank be you. here. So the first was Patricia, the second's Rebecca. Well, we just had a very special round, Defining American, with Jose Antonio Vargas. He raised the question, why whites are called expats and people of color are called immigrants? I imagine that's something that never leaves your mind. I'm, I'm speaking directly to Rebecca for the first part, especially around Thanksgiving, the holiday, celebrating the first North American expats. Does it not, Rebecca? There are so many misconceptions about Native Americans and, you know, what we should be called, what we, uh, what we prefer to be called. I'd like to, uh, tell you the name, our, the name we call ourselves is Ahashaman. Ahashaman. Thank you. My apologies. Ahashaman. Uh, many, many people have trouble with that word. That's the name we call ourselves. We have been called the Huareños. As the missions were formed, the Spanish Padres and the people, the colonists, would name the Native Americans associated with that mission after the mission. So we had our own name, but the colonists gave us a name. And so I guess the point I'm making is that all of these names are often, you know, not what we would call ourselves and probably not what um, we're being called expat immigrant you know i think so the point i'm trying to make is i think it's best to ask the community what what do you call yourself exactly. what do you want to be called and uh, i'm you taking Juanino out of the uh, the refrain and uh, ha- uh, hot jim and, and patricia uh, she's taught me how to say that when her previous appearance at this last september yeah. so mm-hmm. thank you very very much for that so the immigrant theme so after considering that i i'd like for you to then consider Rebecca 
what this alliance that you've created, what it means to you, what you want to accomplish with this alliance. Well, we do have, uh, we like, if you looked at our website, we do have goals. Our goals are preservation of uh, historical, cultural, sacred sites, and education. You know, because say you were to travel to a different part of the country, you know, you you might visit, you know, the first village, or you might visit, you know, like the place of the first baptism in California. You know, here, to the way the history books are written, it's, Columbus came into or the, the Spaniard the first Spanish expedition was 1769 you know and then it's written from that point the missions were discovered these cities were often written out of history and so one of the things that I see as being important is that we have this rich dynamic part of the story the story of California the story of our nation we have national treasures for example Bolsa Chica which is you know like a site that was occupied uh, that people lived at for more than 9000 years it's the only place in coastal california where the cog stones are found it's the only place in the united states actually that they're found amazing. there at bolsa chica they were actually manufactured there and they're found in chile so we have this very very dynamic very ancient history and people are blind to it because of the uh, just the lack of awareness for Native Americans and the prehistory. And so that's one of the things that I'd like, you know, like I, I consider myself a preservationist also because we're preserving that history, not just for the Native American community, but for, you know, the national, you know, the whole nation because it is national history. So I want to just call out the fact that the cogwheel, that could have been what could be an iconic sort of a symbol an, a graphic, an object here. Instead, it's been totally. Rep- we've, it's a surfboard in its place, <laughs> right? Yeah. For and for those right. dwellings there. So I mean, there there are opportunities for these things to to be present and to for us to be aware of. So that, that's what, and Patricia, did you want to add to that? You had a chance to talk about that in an earlier interview, but I but the, and you talked about the car wheel too a little bit. But I, I just want to give you a chance because you were here with me in the studio. Well, what I'd like to add to that and, and uh, is that the sites that we're trying to preserve are the only tangible evidence of their cultural history and, and the only place where they can go and uh, honor the ancestors and, and feel their roots and their history. They, uh, other, place, other people have places they can go to, like a permanent cemetery or something. Correct. Their cemeteries have been dug up. Oh, we're living on top of them. Yeah. We've so, put, we've oh, put you're living on top of them, yes. Gated communities and uh, fast foods yeah. and so, so much. And the other thing I see yes. is that, uh, like in other places, you can go to Chaco Canyon or you can go to the pyramids, but most of our dwellings were, you know, made out of materials that uh, decayed and are no longer in existence. So you know, the people look at a site and say, well, there's nothing here, you know. So you have to really, you know, and that's one reason it's important working with the archaeologists and CCRPA. We found, and we, the Native American community, found that when we were trying to preserve sites, you know, we'd go to places and we'd say, well, my grandmother told me about this. This is where, this is our original village. This is, for example, this is where our creation story starts or something. But 
that wasn't convincing. When the archaeologist says, well, this is a, this is a site that dates to 10,000 years, this, it is in this, you know, it was before the Ice Age or after the mini Ice Age, the science is what the, like, the people that we are trying to appeal to, you know, the Coastal Commission, the developers, the, the city councils, when we're telling them we want to save this site, they understand the science. They don't understand, well, this story comes from here. You know, this song, you know, this song that was a, is a bird song, it talks about this site, you know, doesn't translate. And so working with the archaeologists, it really, it, it's like a language that the developers, the Coastal Commission, the city councils can understand. And so, Rebecca and Patricia, it sounds like there's a really huge structural problem with recognizing this cultural legacy that if it's less about landmarks and it's more about oral traditions, that that makes it even more difficult for the recognition. Well, the things we're competing against are, you know, because we're a a business-oriented, capitalistic society and growth is what's valued and Money is what often moves the developments and things. And so when we say, you know, this is uh, culturally very important, we say it over and over. Numerous people say it, and it's like it falls on deaf ears. It's, it's very, very difficult. And through CCRPA, we, some of these sites, we've worked tirelessly to get on the National Register of Historic Places. You know, one of the problems is that often the land is private land. We don't own it. We have these strong, strong cultural, historical, spiritual ties to the land, but we don't own it. So it's private property, much of it. And so if we, to, uh, if, for example, at Puthidum, it's a very, very important site that's in San Juan Capistrano, where J. Sarah Road and uh, Camino Capistrano intersect. It was a huge site, you know, it was uh, one of the sites where the Ahashman people, you know, we we call it a mother village. We came there, and then from there we developed numerous other sites. One of our leaders, you know, Karoni, our oral tradition, and then the writings of uh, Boscana, uh, one of the padres at the mission, he tells about Karoni, and he tells about the history of the people there. Well, we don't, we work, oh, at least... 10 years. We worked for 15 years to try to preserve that site, and we worked for at least 10 years to try to get it on the National Register of Historic Places. And did it make the it? Land, um, the landowner would not uh, would not support it, and so it's listed as eligible. And then, you know, our stories and the documentation by Boscana says that Corone was a famous person from there. Very rare to have like the names of a famous person. She was a female chief who led that village. Well, when we were, when we had it all nominated and were discussing it, they wouldn't accept Corone for that, uh, there are different criteria for that criteria because they said she would not recognize the place. Now, in my heart, I know she would recognize the place because the hill is still in the same place we could follow and show where the spring is. We could follow and show where the creek is. But those are the kind of things we face in trying to oh, have credibility for our history. You know? 
Could I uh, add so a little bit that? Just before that, just a moment, Patricia. For, for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine on Ask a Leader. My guests in this portion are Rebecca Robles, nurse and a Hachiman descendant, and Patricia Martz, anthropologist and founding board president with Rebecca's mother, who's passed, of the California Cultural Resource Preservation Alliance. Yes, Patricia. Well, I just wanted to add that it, the criteria for placement on the National Register, it, it seemed to me to be very arrogant of the decision makers, the keeper of the re- register, to say that the, the site would not be recognized by the Native Americans had they returned because of the development, ironically, of Unipra Sarah High School, the, really? named after the priest who established the mission that caused a demise of their traditions and culture. So the criteria, the only one they would accept is the archaeology, that it's still, uh, even though there's kids' athletic fields above the burials in the portion of the site that was capped, buried, it still has an importance to the Native people. And But they said, okay, archaeologically it still has things. But that's the only thing they recognize and not the cultural values. So that's duly noted that the words are put in the, a deceased mouth about what was be, what would be acceptable and respectable and valid. And I wanted to have you talk about what happened that you accomplished at the Ancestor Walk in early October this year. And were you able to make some inroads in people having revelations about what's amidst us all this you know, time. Ancestor Walk, my mother started it. My mother yes. started it. We've been doing it 21 years now. And when she started it out, when she started it, it was a public event, and we wanted the students to come. We wanted community to come. And then little by little, it changed to be like a true prayer, a true ceremony. We made it private for the Hashim people because as things change, you know, over the 21 years, we found ourselves needing the ceremony. We need, found it ourselves needing it to be private so that if we cried or were touched or, you know, like uh, got the chills on our ancestral site, that we wouldn't have to explain it. We needed to pull it in to nurture ourselves, to fill ourselves up. And, you know, you always hear we walk in two worlds, but we really do. You know, like for myself, I was raised in Long Beach. My mother, my mother can trace her ancestral village to the site Panhe down in San Juan Capistrano. Yes. But we walk around and we don't, you know, like many people don't recognize us. There's uh, quite a bit of anti-immigration sentiment. People often think we're Mexicans or immigrants. We've lost our land base, you know. And so at this time, we need to fill ourselves up. And so you were asking what we accomplished. We we had a beautiful ceremony. We filled ourselves up. And one of the things that I personally think that at this time in our history where everything has changed and there's so much pressure and kind of a lack of working together, negativity, that we as Native people, you know, like that in addition to filling ourselves up, that, you know, like all these sites that we're talking about that are 10,000 years old, our people lived for at least 10,000 years uh, here. You know, our, our history says that we lived forever here. 
Pat, and that was one of the things Pat recently was uh, showing me, you know, like that in San Diego they found uh, mastodon bones that were wow. etched. It had to be done by a human person. Right. And they were wow. 50,000 years old. So maybe we are right that we lived here forever. forever. But my point is That's... that we, from the contact time, 1760, that's when the first Europeans came here and colonized here, and everything has changed. Yet we lived here for all of that time. And so what my message is, and our message is, you know, that uh, the way we live has to change. It has to be more conscious of, the, of what we're doing to the environment, to the lands, and, you know, to continue to live, we have to change. Yeah. Uh, thank you so. so much. So I want to thank both of you for your time that we could do this today in advance of Thanksgiving. My guests were yeah. Rebecca Robles, nurse, and Ahachaman, descendant, and Patricia Martz, anthropologist and founding board member with Rebecca's mother, the California Cultural Resource Preservation Alliance. Yes, yeah, I'd like to invite everyone to our celebration at Panhe. It's March 24th. March 24th. Thanks for many. We will put those yeah. details in the podcast summary because that's a, that's a very important uh, piece. Thank you, okay. Patricia. Thank, Thank you, Rebecca. You. And happy Immigrants Day to both of you. Thank you. Such the, the <laughs> mixed you. blessing that is. Bye-bye. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Well, that's uh, my wrap I want to thank you both. Uh, thank everybody for listening. Today's show hopefully brings more context and uh, meaning to your Thanksgiving, the immigrants' holiday in the highest. Talk with you next week, and thank you for listening. Happy Immigrant Expat Day, everybody. <laughs>